If you really follow biomimicry and you would keep going with it, like you'd apply it to your business model and your organizational structure, and but we don't. We tend to cut it short and just get the job done, and then we it's we're, you're right back into exploitative capitalism. I thought, you know, if we could figure out a different way to view the world, how it works and our role in it, instead of trying to solve the problem of overconsumption and exploitative capitalism, we would look at the world differently and those problems would go away. And when you have emergence between people, you know, having a conversation or working on a, a challenge, and you have this openness and sense of abundance and trust and, um, and creativity and curiosity, things emerge. And you can see when it happens because people get quiet and like, oh, that, what, what is that? Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Denise DeLuca. Denise is the founder of Wild Hazel. She's an adjunct faculty and the former director of MCAT Sustainable Design Program. She was co-founder of BCI, the Biomimicry Creative for Innovation, which is a network of creative professional change agents driving ecological thinking for radical transformation. She is the author of the book, Realigning with Nature, Ecological Thinking for Radical Transformation, and she also teaches at the Amani Institute. Denise's previous roles include education director for the International Living Future Institute and project manager for Swedish Biomimetics 3000. And she is one of the earliest members of the Biomimicry Institute. And as such, she is a fellow and part of the advisory council and a board member of the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. We have moved to Bali. We have settled in. It's taken us a little while, as you can imagine, but we're so excited to have Denise on the show. And really, we have focused a lot on regeneration, regeneration and education. That said, I also appreciate the fact that the word regeneration is used more and more nowadays, that it risks losing its focus. We had greenwashing, perhaps now there will be teal washing, but that doesn't dissuade us. And we also want to think about the concept of emergence, uh, emergent learning for schools, emergence in terms of all our interactions moment to moment and really life by life. So the fact that Denise is talking of emergent abundance really resonates with us. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. And I'll leave space for my conversation with Denise. Hi, Denise. It's been a long time since we've had a podcast recording here at the Coconut Thinking. It's been the summer. We've moved to Bali. So this is particularly special for me because it's been a little break. So it, we're exploring something that's been near and dear to my curiosity. I was going to say heart, but there's so much that I feel that I have to learn about biomimicry. So much I feel that there is to learn about going beyond biomimicry. And so I'm so looking forward to your thoughts and maybe helping us go on this path and this journey. And the first question I'll ask is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? <laughs> and that is such an interesting question. Uh, in the, there's a philosophical side to that or a kind of a practical side to it. And, and I'll just start with the practical side for context, more the what am I? Um, I, I grew up uh, with a I want to say deep love of nature. My parents love nature. So we spent a lot of time outside and um, didn't have a ton of money. So being outside was pretty great. 
Um, and then fast forward, uh, I ended up going to engineering school because I wanted to be an architect. And I thought I'd get an engineering degree and then architecture. And um, but I, I veered more into the natural side of things, water, and and so I went got a degree in civil engineering, and I was and I got a master's in it, and really it was really on the tech side. I was doing like writing computer programs and. Um, but all along, I, I, there's always like this conflict between humans and nature. And that's what civil engineers are trying to like bridge that. And as a woman civil engineer, there was like, I was usually the only woman in any given workspace. But I realized that was kind of a neat spot to be because I could, it would disrupt the dynamics. And then I could help everyone kind of communicate and speak in ways that they normally wouldn't. So less confrontational and more like, what is this really about? You know, what are we kind of achieving? How can we do this together and more exploratory? And I started to realize how important that was. I also, um, I was at a time in my life when I was, I worked for the government for a while. I, um, I've worked in and out of private sector, run my own companies and, um, for a while, I was doing environmental consulting work, which at that time was mostly cleaning up messes, like leaking underground storage tanks, landfills, things like that. And at that time, I had young kids. And I'm like, I don't want to just clean up their messes. I want them to either learn how to clean up their own messes or make really good messes. Like, if you do something creative and you leave a mess, well, then you go back and you're like, oh, it's inspiring. I'm going to do some more. So I'm like, that's what I want to do with my work. I want to like not clean up someone else's messes either. I want to teach them how to not to make the mess or like nature, messes in nature are great and they lead to the next thing and the next thing. And, and so I started just exploring on my own, like different technologies and frameworks and philosophies and tools. And among all those, and each one was like, yeah, but, you know, it's either it's not actionable or it's incomplete, um, it's something. But then I ran across biomimicry and the first time I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then but it wasn't until later, I was living in Montana, lived there a long time. And that's where biomimicry started. Um, that's where I think Janine Benya still lives. Uh, and I was brought into one of their um, biologists at the design table uh, classes. So they trained biologists how to work with engineers and designers on and biomimicry. And I was just there to help challenge the students and, you know, support them. And during that time, I'm like, this, okay, this is terrible. I'm like, this is so dumb. Like, these people are probably not going to be able to practice this. And what a waste of time. Like you could be doing such big things in the world, not 15 people tucked away in Montana somewhere. And so I went up to Janine and I'm like, you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. And it's like, you do it, you know, basically. And so eventually I was a, one of the first employees at the Biomimicry Institute, which is the nonprofit side. And, um, and then started working with universities and colleges, mostly engineering schools, how they can integrate biomimicry into their curriculum. And I did that for a while, and I've, I've been teaching biomimicry in, uh, in various forms for a long, long time now. And uh, one of the things I would see when I was teaching biomimicry was that 
people would go through a workshop and like just it was amazing to them. They always have an amazing experience and they would they would literally like fall in love with themselves. They would fall in love with each other, fall in love with nature. But I'm like, you know, these people are probably not going to practice biomimicry. It's a, it's a rare thing to be able to practice this specific, you know, design technique, especially something, you know, kind of a radical sustainable design methodology. But so many people love it. I'm like, something else is going on here. So I started watching like for every step of trying to teach the biomimicry design spiral, I would have an activity to help them understand the purpose of the that step. And I would notice what was happening. And things like authentic listening would happen. Like people were both listening and felt listened to, like pure curiosity, like learning for the sake of like, you just totally want to satisfy your curiosity, not to get to the next thing or to solve a problem. And, and then uh, uh, co-creation, emergent thinking, you know, co-creativity, uh, expansiveness, systems thinking, uh, trust, synergy, you know, the sense of abundance and possibilities. It's, it's this wonderfully overwhelming feeling. And I'm like, that is actually more important than learning biomimicry. And if everyone could learn that, then we could do amazing things in whatever organization we're in. So I really kind of shifted my work to, I would say I was teaching biomimicry, which I did, but my bigger goal was to leave them with that sense of um well what i am now calling they experience their natural paradigm together like in community and you'd see this world of possibilities and this all these things shift inside and so um so who i am now is i i was director of, of a master's degree in sustainable design for several years and i i left that so i could go back to pursuing what I started with when I wrote the book, Realigning with Nature, and but bring it to the, the personal level. So I'm right now I'm working to help people recognize what I'm calling the conventional paradigm. That's our thinking in the quote, real world, and recognize how crappy it is for you, for others, for the world. And then recognize your natural paradigm, which is nature's paradigm, and how wonderful and powerful it is and how it allows you to be your best self, which we tend to experience only in our personal time. But if you can recognize it and then develop it, you can apply it in the quote, real world. And that's how I believe change can be made. And in fact, I believe change can't be made if we don't do that. So I'm really devoting myself to doing that. I've created an on-demand course and workbooks. And as a starting point, I haven't just figured out how I want to get it out in the world because I desperately want to get it spread in many different ways and let other people run with it. You know, I believe in emergent abundance. Like I've done this thing, someone else will take it and something else will emerge for them and then they'll expand and they'll just, you know, add to the abundance in, in the world, but abundance of this, this concept. You and I have talked a little bit already about excuse me, emergent abundance. But before we get into that, the question I usually ask is, what does learning mean to you? But I'm going to switch that a little bit in your case, because with biomimicry, there's this idea of, of learning about nature, which is really what we've been doing for the last 200, 300 years. 
then there's learning from nature, and then there's learning as nature. So maybe you can walk us through what these mean, and maybe there's another way that we learn something nature. Yeah, and I and I love exploring this topic with people because people who have spent time with it each have their own personal experience and take on it. And that's in that diversity is so amazing. So as you said, you know, like in school, we, regardless of the level, we tend to learn about nature, you know, naming things, understanding, you know, the, the life cycle and all that. And, and that's all really important is this, this discovery and understanding of the world around us. Um, but we do that in the point of thinking that human beings are, separate from and above nature. We tend to learn these things in order to ultimately exploit them, you know, capitalize on them and find value in them for ourselves, for our own benefits. Not, not exclusively, of course, but that's, you know, where, where it tends to go. And then with biomimicry, it's about learning from nature. You learn how does, you learn about nature's functional strategies. So nature's strategies for performing functions that we want to perform. It could be something as simple as I want a, something to be a bright red color. And the way we do it now generates toxins and, um, and damages the environment and the people that work with it. And it fades, chips, peels, whatever. Um, but of course, in nature, you get amazing colors and of course it's not only not toxic it tends to have a net you know contribute neutral or you know contribution and it does it in using very different strategies it's so like oh what is that strategy and how might we emulate that strategy to create this color in and say a fabric that then can be um, toss back into the ecosystem or simply be a, replace a, a, a toxic. And the thing, you know, so that's a sustainable design methodology and philosophy, which is really fantastic. And I think if for us to realign with nature and to, to be on this earth as participants, um, we need to do practice biomimicry or something similar to that. We have to, we have to do things the way nature allows uh, you know living things to do or you go extinct but they, the problem that i've run into with biomimicry is one many people only do a partial version of it they get inspired by nature but what they end up with is something that is not a net benefit to to nature it can still harm nature like for example one of the biggest users of biomimicry although it it's officially not biomimicry is the Department of Defense. They are all over it because you can come up with really radically innovative, you know, design solutions. So obviously they don't have the idea of, you know, creating conditions conducive to life. I mean, selectively, I suppose. Um, and, and then the other thing is that if you, you know, make a, a widget, using biomimicry and your goal is to sell a cabillion widgets and it's something that we don't need, well, you've kind of lost the point. I mean, 
if you really follow biomimicry and you would keep going with it, like you'd apply it to your business model and your organizational structure. And, but we don't, we tend to cut it short and just get the job done. And then we it's where you're right back into exploitative capitalism. And so what most of us are susceptible to being over, you know, over consumptive. You know, we want the next thing. Even those of us who try not to be, it's the, the pressures are all around us all the time. And who doesn't want, oh, that's a really neat, whatever. And you may have, oh, I'm going to get, you know, a piece of art or something. So you may spend your money differently, but you still want to, to buy and consume and spend. And I thought, you know, if we could figure out a different way to view the world, how it works and our role in it, instead of trying to solve the problem of overconsumption and exploitative capitalism, we would look at the world differently and those problems would go away. And that's a big shift for me between engineering, which is problem solving, it's convergent thinking. And I started hanging out more with designers and that, that divergent thinking. And, and the idea is you imagine the world that you want and you designed for that. And so if you imagine a world where your problems don't exist, you don't solve the problem, you, the problem goes away. And so my approach now is, you know, if you can understand nature's paradigm, like what is the worldview of a tree or a frog or an amoeba? Like what is the, what do they believe to be true about the world, how it works and their role in it? And it, in biomimicry, they say don't anthropomorphize and you really shouldn't look to humans as examples because we've messed so many things up, even ancient cultures, because arguably they didn't survive. So it's not clear why. Um, but I, it dawned on me one time that, of course, we need to look at humans because humans are nature. And if we, when we look at humans outside of the real world, like when we're not either working, selling, buying, whatever, and we're in these wonderful times of our lives, our worldview is entirely different. And then, so the way we look at the world, how it works and our role in it is really different. And so you don't want to by when you're out in a walk in the woods, you just go, wow, this is the perfect. It couldn't be any more perfect than this. It couldn't be any more beautiful than this. You don't want to get on your phone and buy something or, you know, you, you, you just have this sense of, you know, both excitement and peace and, you know, abundance and expansiveness. And it's just wonderful. There's no like hierarchy or ranking or like, I wonder if that guy has the same experience I'm having. <laughs> You're like hoping they do, you know? And, and so if we could take, first of all, develop those feelings more, have more experiences like that, and then recognize exactly what am I experiencing? And then what is my mindset? And what if I approached my challenges in the real world with that mindset, what would it look like? How would it play out? That's what I'm. That's what I'm um, working on now, and that's the the difference. And I'm calling it realigning with nature. And this is actually quite a critical point in the conversation because if we think about the word biomimicry, mimicking life. When I first came across biomimicry, it was at the most superficial levels, which was 
how do we make an airplane or a train that's aerodynamic, inspired by the flight of a bird? Or how do we create an Olympic, uh, I don't know, swimsuit or whatever uh, that, that, that repels water like a shark? And that goes to what you're saying about still exploiting nature for capitalist and, and, and profit means. I'm also thinking about buildings or, or sculptures or whatever that, that look like nature. They might look like flower, a seat or a chair, whatever, a cushion that looks like a flower. That's not biomimicry. The shift here that I'm sensing is more than just replicating how nature does things, the functions of nature to make money. It's a mind shift of really going as nature and thinking about our relationships in a way that within the paradigm of nature, if nothing else, there's no waste and everything that happens is conducive to more life. Talk to us a little bit more about that shift and how it's not just about making a building that does X like nature, but it's about a real change in, in, in our way of interacting with the world. Yeah. And, you know, the examples you gave are, are spot on. So when most people's first entry point into biomimicry is seeing like, oh my gosh, just amazing design of a thing. And it's, it, there's a lot of biomimicry um, in architecture too. So like you said, you could see a building that is shaped this way and uses so much, much, you know, less electricity and zero watt, you know, and, but it's, and it, it's not even necessarily exploitative, but it's, it's still, you know, this disconnect. And so in, in biomimicry, as I think you, you know, there's a term looking at nature as model, measure, and mentor. And so you look at nature for models of what you're trying to do. So you're emulating nature's models and mentors for looking at nature as a, as a teacher instead of a place to exploit and get natural resources. And then measure is like, well, you measure the sustainability of your design based on nature's rules for sustainability called life's principles or nature's principles. And there's some different terms there, but it's all around the same thing. But one of the things I realized was, although those are wonderful, and I think they're a really great starting point, it's the language is still a language of separation. And so to look at nature as a model, it's like you're looking at nature for models. So there's that separation. Same thing with mentor. I'm going to look at nature as my teacher, and then I'm going to look at it for, you know, how do I measure things? And this idea of being of nature is just a really different thing. Like you should know this already. Like it's in your soul, it's in your DNA. The 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 shift is like we we know nature's rules. We know how to do things, but we we forgot. And so um uh, part of a consulting practice, I would help people tap into what we we're calling their wild wisdom that they already know. So I would have them say, ask a tree a question they were, a, a, a challenge they were facing. It could be a, a personal problem or like a, a professional problem. And so just ask, ask the tree. You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it in your head. And of course, the, the tree will ask clarifying questions because the tree doesn't live in the kind of crazy construct that we've created for ourselves. And when you keep going back and forth, asking the tree a question and it asks you a question back and you go back and finally some things start to emerge for you. So it's like, well, how would the tree 
handle this situation. And it starts to become apparent to you what the answer is. And it's a little bit different than biomimicry. You might say, oh, the tree would do this. And so I will do that. Or simply in the conversation with the tree, you understand, you, you get clarity around the nature of the problem, what to do. So of course you haven't practiced biomimicry until de dealing with a specific strategy of the tree, but it's been in you all along. And you just realize, oh, I know this. And if I could tap into that, that deeper wisdom anytime, then, you know, can you imagine how much better we would be running our organizations and how much, you know, we, we would develop our wisdom over time. And I think many people uh, just don't do that. We don't have the time, we don't reflect. And, and of course we might reflect in nature. And then when you reflect as nature, it's an entirely different thing. Like you're walking in, down the, a path in the woods and you're, you're just among your community. You know, you're not like, oh, you're, you're the, the wise one and I'm this awful human and I need to learn from you or copy you. It's like, oh, what, you know, you can explore your differences and what you can learn from each other. And I don't know if the tree could learn from a, a person, but certainly the other way around. But there's a critical piece here because one of the things I imagine that really puts people off in terms of biomimicry is again, that science piece, the design, the engineering. Well, I don't have a background. I think about um, maybe a, a, a civil engineer or somebody who's in who's responsible for desalinization. They might learn from nature, and I'll use that that term from specifically to, to figure out how how, I don't know, plants desalinize or you know the water mm -hmm. in order to survive yeah. and create glucose oh well maybe we should do that but but that, that's really intimidating but what you're suggesting is that we learn as nature without a technical background but rather with an openness mm -hmm. and a sense and a feeling of of how that might be and the organizational design is 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 a piece that really opens us up and, and also i'm going to add another layer to this is considering ourselves as more than human shedding ourselves, our, our human shell, in order to see how we are connected. And this goes back to the systems thinking you were mentioning earlier. And it actually gets back to the original question. It's like, who are you? And well, I'm just the temporary manifestation of the, you know, the molecules that created me. Then I've, you know, eating and whatever you do with your life, you, um, you are who you are and you're you're part of this much bigger whole in this timelessness so when you know you die it, your your body turns into something else but even day to day you know you're always giving you know you've got waste going out of your body you're sweating your skin is falling off and you're taking in air and that's getting incorporated into your cells and you're using energy and it's just it's just constant flow of energy and molecules and calories and um and then you know you think about like the, the quantum physics level and we're just we're participating in this always so we can't like not be part of nature and that's something i try to help people get to like you you can be in a in a basement in a city 
and you were still part of nature. You couldn't, unless you, I mean, you, you can't not be. And it's, that's a really freeing and opening feeling. And once you start to think about that, and there's so many different paths you can go. One is, for example, tackling this issue of mass loneliness. It's like, you're never alone. You know, nature's got your back. Like you can breathe anytime you want and there'll be fresh oxygen in that air because you are actively participating in you, the green friends out there. You know, you, we just were constantly in this dynamic with nature and it's like, wow, I don't, you know, when nature doesn't judge you, that's super freeing and you don't judge nature. You may ponder it or get curious about it, but it's just like, wow, it's a whole different paradigm. And I, that opens you up to new ways of being, new ways of thinking. And it, it's just super exciting. And it's the, and being constantly curious, but in new ways, the, the, the standard way, but it's like for people learning biomimicry, one of the neat things is I never thought about that before. You know, you could endlessly query a pine cone, which is like, wow, I never would have occurred to me to ask a question of a pine cone. But when you do, whatever comes up for you is going to be radically different thinking and thus leads to radically, you know, different innovation. And Many of the listeners that we have, and certainly my background is around schools, and I don't necessarily want to go in that direction, but there's pieces here that bring me back to schools. You talk about measuring. You talk about how we're all always with nature and always as nature, and we're never alone. And then I think of this idea of action. So I'll bring all of them together. Not clearly measurement, grades, and so forth, very individualized, but we can even move beyond this and complexify it where so many places, not just in schools, is this notion of action, action. Let's take action. We want people who are going to be change makers. That to me doesn't go far enough because taking action doesn't mean anything unless we measure qualitatively, post-qualitatively, quantitatively in every single way. And maybe measurement's not even the world, but, but maybe uh, take into account, maybe that's not even the word either. I, I maybe um, th there's something else here, the impact that we have. The responses that we lead to, the 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 fact that it's not even a linear process of if this then that or when I do this this happens, but but the the oscillation, the the synergy of of how we are as the world and 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 the responses that we can't dissociate because we're together, and these are ideas that are so hard to express because we we seldom talk about it and because it is so complex, but how can we get beyond this idea of action and change the world and, and and realize that as nature, it's not about us. It's it's about the way we interact with the world. And yet it's totally about us. You know, like in my book, I was like to a tree, it's a tree centered world and to a frog, it's a frog centered world. So it's okay as a human that it's a human centered world, but that, but when a frog does something in its own self interest, nature benefits and when a tree does something in its own self-interest you know the system benefits but when we do things in our self-interest we damage the system so understanding yourself you know the world how it works and your role in it and how it can all work 
if you can understand that you wouldn't do, we wouldn't do the things that we do that are so exploitative, but kind of getting back to like, without addressing, well, okay, I'll address schools, you know, conventional schools, at least in the United States are designed to crank out employees in the exploitative capitalist system, people who are controllable and productive and um, we train them to be consumers. So you're on this constant treadmill and of course media picks up from there and marketing. Um, and then I think people who are trying to take alternative education and, and make people into change makers. Um, the, the one thing I would, I would want, I, I would wonder is just like as an engineer, I'm trying to solve problems. You're putting energy into the problem and you're in the problem space. And if you stay there, then your solution is going to A, put energy into the problem and B, in the solution space, I'm in the problem space. And whereas if you can imagine the world that you want and then train people to understand it and, and create it and be that, I think that's, that's, the, that's the next shift. So young people need to understand nature, feel nature. It, might, it would be just, in my book, I've got all these silly expressions, but it's like second nature, you know, to be, but it's your first nature. So you, it, it needs to be experiential and then emerges into intellectual. We tend to go the other way around and it's, and I'm personally part of who I am is I am on this journey of trying to be my own, the thing that I'm trying to help people be. And it is a journey because at my age, I've had a whole lifetime you know, of, of being in the conventional paradigm. I still tend to be, use the conventional paradigm to describe the natural paradigm, which is crazy, you know, so I'm more and more trying to step out of it. But if students, I mean, you think about instead of being a good consumer, a good worker, you or even a good citizen or a good change maker, what if they were a good participant of the world? And we say the world, we mean of nature. So they understood what that looked like um, viscerally, you know, spiritually uh, and, and intellectually. And then the skills, what would it take to design that, to live in it, to maintain it, given that we have this, you know, I will say quality of life, but that's a questionable term, because um, that's not all going to go away. And you can't just say, oh, I'm going to go live in the woods, because that's not possible for everyone either. So helping students, again, change making tends to focus on solving problems, you know, and, and blame. And, and, and there, there, is a, there is a need for that for sure, especially in the time of transition, but that can't be the only thing because what's what, what what happens after that? Like, what do we really want? And and children are amazing in their ability to freely imagine. Adults struggle with that. We stop imagining and then we problem solve and we're all proud of that. But with really understanding how, how nature works and how humans work, you know, individually and collectively in and with nature, and then how do we create that in little ways and big ways, you know, and, and, and I think you guys do some of this, but learning, you know, in indigenous ways, of course, that's all 
people have always lived in concert with nature because there, there was no choice. But how do we live in concert with nature given where both civilization and technology have come to now? And that's a beautiful word that was escaping me, participating, participating within nature as nature. And I'll still say, though, it's not about us, but it is about us, yes. But it just depends what we define as us. It's not a fix to us. We, we can move that. Yeah. We can move what yeah. us is. And, and maybe that's um, that, that's also a key. And, and, and I want to go then into this idea of emergent abundance, two very rich words, emergence, abundance. When they mm -hmm. come together, what might that look like? What, what, what are we sensing here with emergent abundance? Yeah. Aren't they great words? I think, you know, when, you know, coming from an engineering background, I did study things like paradigms and, you know, <laughs> merchant thinking. And so I had to do a lot of, you know, learning and like, what do we call this? What, what is this magic that happens? For example, when people are learning biomimicry and, or when I've been with colleagues practicing it, like there's something magic happening and it's when synergy happens when the you know the the sum of the part you know the parts the whole is greater than some of the parts and and so things are happening and something emerges and nobody it's no one's it's everyone's and when you so the emergence is a you know comes out of the the it's a property that comes out of the 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 system and the system dynamics that the, the the nature and the characteristics of that system. So this emergent property. And when you have emergence between people, you know, having a conversation or working on a, a challenge, and you have this openness and sense of abundance and trust and then um, and creativity and curiosity, things emerge. And, and you can see when it happens because people get quiet and like, oh, that. What, what is that? What? And, and so when, um, and when, when you have you know, the way I'm describing it, when you're operating from a group of people are operating from the natural paradigm, things emerge quickly and all the time. And you get these amazing ideas and it's egoless. And yet you're fully participating with your, I guess your ego, but you don't really care that you get credit or they get credit. And, and so and so emergence is that it's something new that emerges because of, in this case, we're talking about people, you know, getting together and sharing um, diverse and divergent ideas. And it's like in imagining. And then when you have this emergence, it adds to the abundance of, of, of the good things um, that, that we need to solve the challenges that we're working on. And so, for example, I was, you know, talking to you earlier about my goal with my work, Wild Hazel, is right now, okay, I'm kind of, I have these courses and, and you know, want to run workshops and, and I want to do all those things. But what I really want is for people to discover it, experience it and go, oh my gosh, something new it triggers all this new thinking in them because of their life experiences and their worldview. And then that adds to the abundance and they take it in an entirely different direction. And it may end up not looking like what where I started it, but I, 
seeing it go in all these different directions and take different forms. Yeah, because like abundance itself is a curious, you know, term. There's, you know, having more than enough is a form of abundance. Like we have more than enough air. You can breathe as much as you want. You could never take in all the air, you know, you could be. Then there's a sense of always having enough. If you know you have enough, and there's slightly more than that, that too is abundance. It doesn't matter how much there is. Then there's a sense of abundance where the more you share, the more you have, or the more you create, or even the more you give away, the more you, the more there is. So things like um, uh, curi curiosity, creativity, knowledge, love, you know, the more love you give away, the more love you have, the more love there will be. And it keeps, it keeps going. So that's, um, it's that positive um, upward spiral of abundance. And when we focus on seeking things that are abundant and then seeking to create abundance, so many amazing things happen as opposed to seeking things and valuing things that are scarce and making sure other people don't get them. And you, you know, then you go down this, um, this downward spiral. Or not having something, seeing that as a problem and finding solutions to getting more of it. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is where this, this shift, um, the more you realize when are you, happiest when do you experience joy delight love um curiosity what do you what are you really feeling in that moment and when we don't have those things is when we participate in exploitative capitalism because we we're, we're afraid um you know we're paranoid uh we feel alone we feel like we have to be greedy, even if we wouldn't consider ourselves to be greedy, or we wouldn't want, would never want to be called greedy. But you know, why would you want so much more than you need, knowing full well if you bother to think about it, it's hurting people and places. Like you wouldn't do that, but you do do that because you're stuck in the conventional paradigm. And it makes me also think. I mean, emergence is is one of the fundamentals of nature's paradigm the fact that we have conditions and we don't actually know what will happen but it will happen within a certain boundary uh certain possibilities let's say mm -hmm. and and i'm and i'm thinking then in terms of nature's paradigm maybe um you know i'd love it if you if you explore this a, a little bit more about the fact that there is no waste you mentioned it earlier as well you mentioned that life is 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 life and that there's no such thing as as waste that goes to waste and how that sounds like something that like, oh, well, when we produce, we could make sure that there's no waste. But it's more than that. It's, it's, it's as you suggest that the, the relationships yeah. we have, maybe explore that a bit more. Yeah, that's that's interesting, because, for example, a problem solving approach to waste is like, OK, we're going to reduce waste. We're going <clears> to <throat> get more efficient. Primary goal of engineers is make things you know more efficient. And then the next approach would be, well, if we're going to make waste, can we like do some value add thing to get some money from the waste or could we feed it into another, you know, waste equals food, but it's still this kind of linear, how do we get value out of it? But getting back to this concept of abundance, 
if everyone uses the same small set of molecules and biochemical processes, then everything can be endlessly cycled and recycled. So there is temporarily what you might call waste. Like if you watch where a squirrel eats every day, there'll be a pile of, you know, shells and pine cone bits down there. But of course that typically turns into soil. Sometimes things are eaten or they, we have these wonderful organisms that degrade things, whether they're mushrooms or crabs, they're always, that's their job in, in, in the cycle. And so because we're all made of the same molecules and the same DNA, we can just constantly exchange and, and re-exchange. And so thus it's abundant. You can have scarcity and abundance. There's a limited number of molecules on this earth, on the surface, in the bio, you know, cycling around, but we have endless life because it, it feels like abundance because of this constantly cycling around. So you, you know, in nature, something doesn't say, I'm going to generate this waste and then feed it into a system. Nature organizes around opportunities like that. It's like, oh, there's something I can use. So I'm gonna hang out here and I'm gonna, you know, live here and use this, this resource. And so it's, there is no waste in that regard. Another curious thing, uh, looking at this waste efficiency concept that we tend to have is that one question I like to ask engineers um, to help them just rethink things is I'm like, okay, how would you measure the efficiency of an apple tree? I'm like, well, what do you mean? Answer the question. Because with, with engineering, it's one parameter on the numerator and same one in the denominator you know, energy in, energy out, for example. And it's like, well, if the goal of the apple tree is to make new apple trees, most of those apps is super inefficient. And most of those apples are wasted. If the goal of an apple tree is to feed, you know, animals, again, most of them fall on the ground and rot right there. Well, if you know, so you start asking all these different questions, but of course it's because everything's part of a system. And so people will say, well, photosynthesis isn't very efficient because photosynthesis is doing more than the one thing that you're measuring. It's doing all kinds of things that's dynamically optimized. And of course it's evolved to be dynamically optimized and can shift when, when things need to shift. So. Waste is a funny concept. Is an apple rotting underneath an apple tree waste? Yeah, of course not. But we might look at it as such, depending on how we are looking at that situation. And then when you mentioned efficiency, I keep thinking of this idea of survival of the fittest, which is actually kind of a misunderstanding um, of, of what Darwin uh, was, was saying or and but nevertheless, we think well, we have to be the most efficient because it's survival of the fittest. But that's not how nature works because the competition nature is different. It's about optimization, as you mentioned. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and for people who don't know, you know, we tend to think of fittest as the most like in shape, the fastest, the strongest, you know, the big, the best fighter. But that's because again, that's our conventional paradigm, you know, thinking, and which we are taught in school. But and what Darwin meant was the the 
the ones that survive are the ones that can best fit themselves into the system where they are. And so they figure out strategies to what I'm calling like align with nature, but it's, it's more specific to exactly where they are. So it's the best fit. So they are the fit est, which is not how we would normally think of, think of that, um, that word. And, and, you know, we, we can't, it's so hard for us to get away from the, uh, the conventional paradigm. And I do it myself, you know, you just spend your whole life learning things and people say, oh, you have to unlearn them. And I, I used to bristle at that, but it's, I think you just have to really deeply learn a new thing. But you still go, well, what about that? It's like, you can't, those questions don't make sense. And um, so like some of the questions you're asking, if you asked a tree that question, it just would be absurd. You know, that's how you know you're, you need to shift your thinking. If you can, if you look at any organism, of course, it's all part of a system. There is no such thing as an individual entity. It wouldn't make sense, you know? And it's like, oh, well, what does make sense? And you just, you know, keep, keep exploring that and keep exploring that. And, uh, and this, you know, gets, gets back to your original question, you know, who are you? It's like, if we define ourselves by how much we produce, you know, our, our degrees, our job titles, our possessions, um, you know, that's really problematic because it's aiming at, you know, um, doing things at the expense of other people and in hierarchy to um, other people. Um, there are hierarchies in nature, but it's not about control. It's about, well, there's it's about uh, what needs to be done. And these all these different things need to be done. And one way to do it is through this hierarchy. Another is through like a heterarchy. So you're always having changing leaders, but you still have to have like a leader. And there's things like swarms. So there are no leaders. And then you have one that I call roots and shoots. So like a, like a, a, a seed, is, um, well, look, let's look at a coconut, you know, a coconut might float down a river and land on a, a beach somewhere. And it, so it's a leader. It, it's, it's a wave, it's leading into a new place. There aren't, maybe there aren't any coconuts growing there. And so it's, it has, it has to have enough resources to survive until you can get those first roots and shoots. And then those roots and shoots themselves are leaders because they have to go on and explore where no others have gone and look for the resources. And so it's another form of um, of of leadership. So there's different forms of leadership that you can learn from nature. Tell us about your work at Wild Hazel, which is your company. So what what is it that you're doing and trying to shift? Yeah, so it's brand brand new. Um, I've been thinking about it for a long time and doing parts of it for a long time, but I decided I, at this point in my life, I'm turning 61 in a couple of weeks. I'm like, I really want to like focus on this because no one else is really doing this particular work. There's so many amazing people doing amazing work in this space, which makes me feel really optimistic. And if we could connect and have emergence, you know, that's what I'm seeking. So um, it's what I was explaining before. Right now I have online on-demand 
courses, which I want to turn into, you know, cohort and community-based courses, but I just wanted to get the, the structure down, where people can experience for themselves. It's all about having these experiences and discovering or rediscovering um, the, the power, inspiration, and wisdom that comes from your own natural paradigm. And so it's, it's take people through a whole series of experiences and um, and then teach them processes for how do you continue continuously learn and transform and evolve. And they're all spiral processes because all processes in nature are spirals. You know, we talk about circles, but it never ends the way it starts. It's a different place, you know, different time, things change. And um, so wanting people to have that experience for themselves, like, wow, I do experience and express the natural paradigm. And here's how it it's in violation of my personal values, my priorities. And I don't like who I am when I do this. Um, I don't like other people. I'm a jerk. And I feel like I have to be a jerk sort of a thing. And I, I just, by default, participate in exploitative capitalism. And it's like, well, by contrast, Notice when and how and where you're experiencing the natural paradigm and think about the interactions you have while or immediately after you're having that experience. And typically that's very aligned with your values and your priorities and how you want the world to be. So the trick is how can you develop and nurture, you know, grow and nurture your natural paradigms. So you actually have like a, a a literal like toolkit, like if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. So in this situation, I'm going to use this tool. And so you can go um, back and forth. And eventually when you do that, you'll have emergence. You'll be a different person. The people around you will be, will gravitate to you because you'll be, you know, radiating this, your natural wonderfulness. And then hopefully you'll, you know, you'll be a you'll lead differently, you'll participate differently. And, you know, I would imagine many people would not be able to tolerate their jobs anymore. They would live light, they'd make different life choices uh, because of that. But one of the things I, my initial target audience was leaders of nonprofits, you know, people who are trying to fix the problems that exploitative capitalism has created. But what I've seen both inside and outside of organizations is that they, they lead the organization with a business mindset because that's what they believe they have to do in order to succeed. But of course, that's the mindset that created the problems they're trying to solve. And it, they can make some headway, but ultimately it, it hasn't worked. We've been working on these issues forever. And I beat my head against while as a, many of my colleagues over time is like, why is this? Like, we know. And people say, oh, we don't have the political will. I think, and having, you know, deep empathy for people, like we don't, we've lost not only connection with nature physically, but we've lost connection with our own inner nature. And like, like you were saying, the being of nature. And if we really felt that, it would be like, oh, it would just be this, this awakening um, and, you know, like 
you'll have little epiphanies and you know you'll you feel enlightened and it is a it is a journey you know it'll be a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more and what i want to do is to reach enough people or small groups so that together they can create this new emergent abundance and design the world that we want to live in and it's not just the things you know the products and the buildings it is how we live how we will be as individuals as collectives and it sounds so grandiose but when you try it in little ways and that's that's kind of the theory of change is you have to have value at every step along the way you can't say well if i go through this whole thing keep trying someday i'll you know it's like nope the moment you do it you will feel it and you'll go oh you'll have a different conversation with your partner you know you'll that it's 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 that simple and that powerful and then you just keep going with it so it is about shifting paradigms, which is, of course, if you look at, say, Danelle Meadows and, you know, that that's the most powerful place to make a shift is at the paradigm level. But that's the hardest. But I would suggest that because we already have the natural paradigm in us, that is our natural paradigm. It's not so much shifting the paradigm. It's shifting your dominant paradigm. And so instead of being triggered and trapped by this conventional paradigm, which is a human construct that it's, it's fake, it's made up, you know, the natural paradigm is how nature has, you know, evolved to be, that is what is successful. And when you start to feel it, you're like, oh, I know this and it's so amazing. And so, so many things that we, you know, we get in our own way all the time and we have these false assumptions. Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so stressed. And it's like, are you really like, or did you make that up? Because you've got, if you think you're busy, you think you don't have enough time, you don't have the time, but you could just challenge the assumption right off the get go, you know? And so that's one of the things that we do in course is like challenge these assumptions that you've been walking around with your whole life because you're told this and everyone else around you says it. So you just believe it. It's like, are you really? And then you start to, that's one way to get at it. But the more powerful thing is to experience the natural paradigm and just contrast the two. So Denise, I really appreciate your time and all these insights. And I think it opens us to, like you said, different ways of, of being and becoming as the world um, mm -hmm. and, and feeling it and thinking it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Benjamin. I, I, I love, uh, I've listened to several of your podcasts and what, what you explore, and this is the kind of thinking that we that we need in the world. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can check out our website on www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. And as always, we are in partnership with Intrepid Ed. That's www.intrepided.com. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you. We've got uh, some wonderful guests lined up and we will try to release them, these episodes every week. So in the meantime, speak to you soon. Bye-bye.